Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, watery stars. We'll find out how water forms inside a red giant star. How can we produce this water? And the only possible way to do it seems to be if we can use ultraviolet radiation to break up the carbon monoxide. That would liberate the oxygen atoms to react with hydrogen atoms and form water molecules. But where does that UV light come from? We'll also be hearing from one of the delegates at the European Planetary Science Congress with some of the headlines from the event. Plus, news of a new way to spot asteroids, changes in the fine structure constant, and dust clouds around binary stars. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. As usual, we'll start by joining our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. Andrew Ponson is back after last month's absence, and he joins me with Carolyn Crawford in the studio. Dominic Ford this month is coming down the line from Manchester. So, Dominic, why are you up in Manchester? Well, I'm in a meeting which is discussing the design of the Square Kilometre Array, which is an international radio telescope which will be built in the latter half of this decade at a desert site somewhere in the southern hemisphere. And what we're looking to do at the moment is to look at different possible designs by which this telescope could be built, and we're simulating observations with those various designs, and we're seeing what kind of images they produce and whether they're of the scientific quality that we need to do the science that we want to do with the SKA. So in terms of the kinds of objects that the SKA will be looking at, it's a multi-purpose observing facility, so it will be able to look at whatever kinds of objects the sky throws up, so anything from pulsars to protoplanetary disks. But I guess one of my favourites is the work that it may be able to do with really very distant galaxies, because galaxies are made mostly of hydrogen. We think of hydrogen as being a transparent gas, and it is mostly transparent. But when you heat it up a bit, it can start to radiate at a very precise wavelength of 21 centimetres. And if you have a radio telescope that can observe at that wavelength, then you can start to see this glow of this hydrogen gas. And if you have a telescope as big as the square kilometre array, you can see that emission from really incredibly distant galaxies. They want to see galaxies right back when galaxies were beginning to form and try and see that formation process and see when and how these galaxies formed out of the intergalactic gas. 
You say that you're testing different designs and modelling different designs at the moment, but surely in order to know how well your design will work, you need to know where it will be. You were very vague saying it'll be in a desert site in the southern hemisphere. Why don't we know where it's going to be yet? Well, we're citing large telescopes. There's often a process rather like picking a site for the Olympics, where you pick a range of good sites and you evaluate those sites and you make sure there are no problems before you commit yourself to one particular location. So at the moment there are two candidate sites for the SKA, one in Australia and one in South Africa, and there are test instruments being deployed on those sites to make sure, for example, that there are no problems from uh, radio transmitters, mobile phones, etc., that could really interfere with the instrument. When do we expect to know where it will be placed? So a decision we made in about two years' time, based on the data that people are collecting at the moment. I have to say at the moment both sites are looking incredibly good and I think it's going to be a very close call which one is selected. That was, I think, a very politically sound answer there, Dominic. Yes. What else have you seen in astronomy news this month? So I spotted a paper in the Astrophysical Journal by Cesar Fuentes and his collaborators who have pioneered a new way of detecting very faint and distant asteroids. Now, the normal way that people go about detecting these objects is to take lots of images of the sky and you'll have stars in those images that won't move and any asteroids that you see will move from one frame to the next and by picking out the motion of these objects you can work out what orbit they're in about the sun. Now, what this study was saying was the Hubble Space Telescope probably actually picked up asteroids the whole time in the course of observing other objects. They happen to pass through its field of view and they leave a kind of streak across the image where the asteroid has passed through. And so in a pilot study, what they've done is they've taken 150 historical observations using the HST and they've scanned these images for any traces that might be caused by asteroids. And they think they've picked out 14 asteroids in 150 images. So that means potentially 1 in 10 Hubble Space Telescope images might have an unknown asteroid in it. It's probably not quite that good because they have cherry-picked 150 images that they thought were quite promising to begin with. But looking ahead, this is quite exciting because there's a huge archive of Hubble images which are still yet to be processed. And looking to the future, it might be a very good idea every time anyone observes anything with the HST to have a computerised process by which you scan these images just to see if there were any asteroids there. And that could be a fantastic way of discovering asteroids and very quickly then being able to follow up those observations and make further observations. So with the ones they've looked at so far, was that a computerised process or has somebody had to go through painstakingly by eye trying to compare the differences? They've done a bit of both. They've written a computerised programme which can scan these images and then someone has gone through afterwards and checked the programme to make sure that what the programme is picking out is real and that it's not artefacts or cosmic rays in the data which are not really physically there. Carolyn, what have you spotted this month? An interesting story about water molecules around a red giant star and how they came to get there because it's quite, quite an interesting conundrum about how you make water molecules in space. These observations concern a large star called C.W. Leonis. It's, a, it's what's known as a red giant. It's a, 
a star that's perhaps only a few times more massive than our sun, but it's a lot bigger. It's puffed up in size, so it's hundreds of times the size of our sun. And it's at a late stage in its life, so it's busy fusing atoms to form carbon in its core. And one of the features of these stars at the end of their life is they puff up all their outer layers to form a sort of huge envelope that blows off the star in a stellar wind. And the consequence of this is when you look at this star in the infrared, it's actually the brightest star in the sky, 10 microns. And that's because it's entirely enveloped by this sort of cloud of gas and dust. And this dust absorbs the light from the star and re-radiates in the infrared. So it's glowing intensely in infrared light. And as long ago as 2001, astronomers detected water vapour in this cloud. And that was kind of curious because carbon stars don't produce water. And so the water, they thought, had to be some kind of external origin. So maybe you had comets or dwarf planets that got vaporised by the star's heat and light to produce these, these water molecules. The new development is that some observations taken with ESA's Herschel Space Observatory have measured the temperature of this water. And it's got this huge range from minus 200 degrees, which is what you might expect if it came from comets on the outskirts of a solar system around the star, but up to 800 degrees, which means a lot of this water was formed actually quite close in to the star and not where you're going to find comets and dwarf planets in a sort of stable configuration. So they've had come up with a new way of forming water molecules within this dust cloud, deep within this dust cloud near to the star. And the idea is this dust cloud is observed to be quite clumpy. You still have an external origin, but this time for light, very energetic ultraviolet light from surrounding stars, which can penetrate through the dust cloud. And what it does is it attacks and breaks up molecules such as carbon monoxide, silicon monoxide, and this releases oxygen atoms that then go on their merry way to combine with hydrogen molecules to form water. And so it's a new theory for how the water is created in these envelopes. So, again, it's interesting to speculate the idea that here you've got very a lot of carbon-based compounds as well as a lot of heat and new water molecules. And, of course, those are some of the ingredients that are necessary for life. So, again, people like to play with the idea that the precursor ingredients for life are actually quite widespread within our universe. Water at 800 degrees is amazing, isn't it? I mean, All right, how, steam. How hot... steam. <laughs> sure, sure, it's steam, but uh, how, how hot does the, the molecule actually survive to? Because presumably eventually it, it falls apart if you heat it too hard. So I think interstellar dust grains certainly break down at about two or 3,000 degrees, and that would probably be the same kind of figure for water. And we'll have a bit more about how they actually did that work later on in the show. Andrew, what have you seen for us this month? Well, a paper came out this month talking about what physicists call the fine structure constant. Now, uh, it's essentially just a number. It's, in fact, it just it takes a value of about 0.007. And that number tells us how strong the force of electromagnetism is. And that's the force that governs things like electricity, uh, magnetism, and it also holds atoms and molecules together. And the thing is, in our current theories of physics, there's no particular reason for it to take any value relative to any other. It's just that experimentally it takes roughly this value, 0.007, and that gives us the universe that we know and love. If it was a bit more or a bit less, we would be living in a very different universe, or in fact, we probably wouldn't be living at all. 
So good question to ask, why does it take this value? And in fact, there are some new theories of physics that give you some hints about where this value might come from. For instance, in string theory, this number actually gets derived from the sizes of the extra dimensions that uh, come about in string theory. Now, I don't want to talk too much about that because we'd be opening up a whole uh, new kettle of fish. But the point is, in something like string theory, this number is not fixed, but it can actually change. It can change over time or it can change from one part of space to another. So for some time now, astronomers have been hoping that they might be able to use astronomical observations to check whether this number has indeed changed in time or with position. And the news that came out this month is that a group based in Australia, led by John Webb, have made a really audacious claim that using their data, they're claiming that the properties of atoms were different in the distant past. Now, they've claimed that before, so that, that's not a new claim. But what they're claiming now is not only were they different in the distant past, but they were also different in different regions of space. So they're saying that this number does, in fact, change both with space and with time. Now, the way they've come to that conclusion is by looking at the behaviour of atoms using very powerful telescopes. And a few years ago, they released data from the Keck telescope, about 140 measurements. And that's what uh, led them to say that this number was, in fact, slightly smaller in the past. But since then, they've been taking data with a different telescope, the very large telescope, the VLT. And according to that data, this number was actually slightly larger in the past. So these seem to be contradictory results. And uh, I have to say, if I came across these, my first reaction would be there's something wrong with my experiment because I'm getting contradictory results depending on which telescope I'm looking at. But there is actually another explanation because these telescopes cover different parts of the sky. And the other explanation is that these variations are different depending on which part of the sky you're looking at. And that's the claim that this group are making. And I should say that actually their, their claim is given some weight by the fact that even within the data from an individual telescope, you do see slight variations depending on which direction you're looking in, which is consistent with the difference between the two telescopes. So this is audacious. It's dangerous in the sense that it's a very difficult measurement to make and there could have been a mistake. But if they turn out to be right, then you can't really overstate the importance of this result. It really would be a, a fundamental change in our picture of the universe. How do we now follow this up? How do we confirm whether they're right and we do need to be worried about one of the foundations of modern physics or they've just mismeasured or there's an instrumental problem? How do we confirm that? All we can hope for at the moment is for an independent check uh, by independent scientists with independent data. They will be using, though, uh, a very similar method, which is, of course, cause for concern. So all we can do for now is watch the subject carefully. So that's one to keep an eye on in the future. Carolyn, what else do you have for us this month? Well, I'm going back to dusty disks around stars. Uh, it's been a month for this. Very different situation, though, because these are disks of dust around not one star, but around a pair of binary stars. In fact, there's a whole number of binary stars that show this feature. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about just any old pair of stars in orbit around around each other. These are very tightly locked 
binary stars there. It's separated by only about 3 million kilometres. I mean, our sun is only 1.4 million kilometres across. That gives you an idea of how close they are. They're orbiting each other only every few days. And these stars, they may be similar in size to our sun. They're quite a bit younger. They're not very young. They're about a billion to maybe a few billion years old, so slightly younger than our sun. But they are mature stars. The idea is that these pairs of stars, they have very strong magnetic fields within the star, which drive strong stellar winds of material. The stars lose energy from doing that. They slow down. They spiral into this very tight configuration. But this happens over a while. The observations of these stars, when you look at them in the infrared light, is that you find they've got this huge excess of infrared light. And there's some... More detailed observations published this month by Jeremy Drake and collaborators from Harvard, where they've looked at three of these close binary pairs with the Spitzer Space Telescope and sort of studied the large dust cloud. And the problem is the origin of this dust. The stars are too young. They're not like the red giant star C.W. Leonis, where I was talking before, one of these carbon stars that billows off clouds of dust. They're much younger. They haven't reached that stage of their evolution yet. However, they're sufficiently mature that this isn't material left over from a cocoon from the original star formation. It's long since been dispelled by stellar winds and radiation. So the idea is this dust must have been continually replenished or created more recently in the lifetime of the stars. And the idea, which I think, to be fair, is quite speculative, but it's an interesting idea to play with, is that as these two stars spiral into this close orbit around each other, imagine they had solar systems attached to them at that point. And as the stars get closer and closer, you're going to have all those planets around each star dragged along behind them, jostled around by the gravitational tidal forces, and inevitably, some will end up smashing into each other. And the idea is this dust cloud could be the pulverized remains of solar systems around those stars. So it is an idea, but it's one that's quite fun to play with. Thank you, Carolyn. Andrew, what else do you have? Well, I also spotted uh, another story about cosmology, but this time using an effect known as gravitational lensing. Now, that's the effect that gravity has on light. As light travels past massive objects in the universe, it's deflected away from its original path. So instead of travelling in a straight line, it gets kind of uh, pulled round a corner by really massive objects. And a study coming out from Eric Jullo at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California has been looking at this lensing effect around a galaxy cluster known as Abel 1689. And when we talk about massive objects, this thing really is massive. It's something like 200,000 billion times the mass of our sun. So light from galaxies behind that that cluster as far as we're concerned here on earth some some galaxies just happen to appear behind that cluster does get lensed or, or deflected and what this study has been looking at is that that lensing gives constraints on the nature of dark energy because the way that the light gets bent or deflected is dependent not only on the uh, thing that's doing the deflection, in this case the galaxy cluster, but also the details of the large-scale universe, which uh, in turn tells you something about the nature of dark energy, which is accelerating the expansion of the universe. 
So in theory, this is a, a really interesting thing to do. It gives you a different way of finding out something about this mysterious substance that seems to make up something like 70% of the contents of the universe. But I would say that the constraints that they're publishing at the moment are only just really useful compared to the normal probes that we'd use. That would be things like the cosmic microwave background, which we've discussed before, and supernovae probes, which we've also discussed before. Now, in addition, they've made certain assumptions about the shape of this galaxy cluster. And I think if you relax those assumptions, if you weren't so definite about what shape galaxy clusters were, you might find that the constraints on the dark energy were really not as good. So one thing that I'd certainly like to see is this applied to other galaxy clusters, and then we can start to see just how accurate a technique it really is. And finally, Dominic, you have an update for us. You may remember back in July, we talked about the fact that a couple of amateur astronomers had seen a flash on Jupiter, which they thought was caused by the impact of an asteroid with the planet. This story had an interesting twist in the last couple of months because actually another couple of amateur astronomers have detected another event in, in August. So it seems like perhaps asteroids are impacting with Jupiter the whole time and that amateurs can see these events. They've just never before thought it was possible to pick up these events. And I think now that people know it is possible, we might find that a lot more amateurs start looking and a lot more of these events will be detected, and we might really start to get a distribution of the kinds of objects which are impacting Jupiter. And from that, we'll be able to work out what kind of sizes of asteroids there are out at the distance of Jupiter in the solar system. Again, the amateurs lead the academics into interesting discoveries. That was Dominic Ford, and before him, Carolyn Crawford and Andrew Ponson with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this program, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Still to come, we take a look at solar chemistry to find out how water can form inside a red giant star. But first, this month saw the European Planetary Science Congress held at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. To find out what the Congress is and explore some of the headlines coming out of the event, I spoke to John Merrison, a planetary researcher from Aarhus University in Denmark. It's a forum where planetary solar system researchers can get together, present their work, discuss their results and plan new missions, propose new missions, uh, try to get on other people's missions, discuss the latest technology, instrument development. There's also students that come here, so it's an opportunity for them to learn a lot more about planetary research and put their work into uh, perspective and get to network there's also a lot of science discussion, and there's also a lot of missions and technology discussion. And is it just delegates from Europe, or do you have people from all over the world? No, it's, uh, it's very international. We are about 700 participants this year. There's been about 100 uh, from the States. I don't know how many from the other countries, but there's certainly been a, a lot of Russians here. They have their own uh, proposals for missions. They've been active in uh, presenting their work. So uh, although its central purpose is to network uh, within Europe, it's certainly put on an international uh, scale. And next year, 
it's going to be a joint meeting with the American DPS meeting. So that'll be very international. So you have a range of professionals, academics and students there. Is it also open to amateur astronomers? Yes, I know of at least one amateur who's presented his, his work here and it's been very exciting. I believe he observed some new impacts on Jupiter and um, some of the activities here are, are aimed at getting amateurs involved in the science of looking at the solar system. They're doing a huge amount of observations and this in principle is a resource that the scientific community really is excited about utilizing. There are going to be meetings in the future. There was a spin-off meeting here this morning. It was all about amateur astronomers and how they can contribute to the science of planetary research. And how's Rome as a setting? Uh, perfect, really. It's wonderful. It's very relaxed and uh, people can be outside and, and chat in a very relaxed way. We're right in the centre, so we're right next to the Colosseum, so everybody's been... Uh, out late in restaurants discussing and uh, it's been very pleasant. A nice chance to combine a bit of, uh, of tourism as, along with your science. What have you been there for personally? What work are you presenting? We have a ESA and EU supported laboratory facility in Aarhus where we, we look at the Martian surface. So we have a, like a simulator facility and we're also building uh, instruments to send to Mars and maybe on other planets. What do you think have been the, the most exciting news and the most exciting things to have come out of the conference this year? Uh, well, there's been a few events. Uh, apparently there's a new model for how Phobos, one of the moons of Mars, was created. The latest results seem to indicate that it was maybe produced from an impact on Mars. Rather and, like uh, our own moon. Rather like our own moon, yes, indeed. Mercury... Uh, the NASA Messenger mission is looking at some mineralogy of Mercury and this is not fitting in with what they expected, so that's quite exciting. Uh, I think the scientific community is a little confused as to what all that means. They're looking forward to when the European Bepi Colombo mission arrives there. Maybe it'll shed some light on that issue. Venus, there's been several good talks here about recent volcanism on Venus and lightning in the atmosphere. I think they're getting closer to understanding the rather complicated atmospheric circulation of Venus. Uh, oh, yes, and there's been some great pictures of the moon from the Lacrosse uh, mission. Incredible resolution. There's lots of activity for upcoming missions to the moon. John Merrison with a delegate's perspective on the European Planetary Science Congress. Now, how does water form inside a star? I spoke to Professor Mike Barlow from University College London to find out how they solve this problem. Well, the problem that was revealed, and we got a hint of it about 10 years ago, was that uh, the brightest carbon star in the sky, CW Leo, uh, was found uh, to have oxygen-rich molecules in its atmosphere, water molecules, uh, along with carbon monoxide. They're the two most common ways you find oxygen in molecules around cool stars. Now, the problem that was encountered uh, about 10 years ago, there was an American probe called SWAS, S-W-A-S, which detected a single water line from um, a cool, low excitation level from this star. And it was so surprising because around carbon-rich stars, 
you should get all the oxygen locked up in carbon monoxide molecules. You shouldn't be have any oxygen left over to form any other oxygen-rich molecules. So this is because the ratio of carbon to oxygen suggests that all the chemistry will involve locking up the oxygen molecules and we won't see them available for things like water. That's right. That was the sort of the, the very simple division we had between oxygen-rich stars and carbon-rich stars. Carbon monoxide was the key molecule. If the oxygen was more abundant than carbon like it is in the sun, then you only get oxygen-rich molecules because all the carbon is locked up. And vice versa, when a star becomes carbon-rich due to nuclear reactions creating carbon out of helium and bringing it to the surface, then once that star has more carbon than oxygen, all the oxygen should be locked up within carbon monoxide. And therefore, you should only get carbon-rich molecules using the remaining carbon that's in the atmosphere. So we're talking about fairly old stars in that case, if it's had enough time for the reactions to build up this much carbon. Yeah, these are stars right at the end of their lives. Probably in the mass range of one to five solar masses. When they use up all the hydrogen in the core, they start burning helium. And eventually they bring up, as I said, the, the products of helium burning to the surface. And they become very luminous at the same time. They become what's called red giant stars, a particular type of red giant star, which eventually will lose so much mass that it will become a planetary nebula. That's when the, uh, the remaining star in the center contracts down and becomes very hot and ionizes the ejected material. Eventually that star becomes a white dwarf. And that's thought to be the uh, end, the fate of the sun in five billion years from now. So how was the presence of water, this, this spectral indication of water, justified ten years ago? How did they explain it? Well, they, uh, because uh, it was so unexpected and because the chemical models for formation of molecules in the atmosphere of the star didn't predict enough water, they hypothesized that there might be a comet cloud around the star left over from the earliest uh, stages of formation of the star, just like an Oort cloud around the sun has been hypothesized. So they suggested that the, the very strong mass loss from the star was interacting, hitting the comet clouds and releasing water molecules, which, uh, because it was so far away from the star, they would be quite low temperature. And if you'd only see the few lines like the line they saw. What's happened with Herschel, of course, is it's seen uh, with its spectrometers. It's been able to see a much bigger wavelength range than Swarth could. And we've detected more than 60 different water lines coming from all levels of excitation. So seeing this and seeing that this means that there must be water there at, at a range of temperatures, this suggests that actually the original hypothesis for how that star was capturing this water is probably not right. That's right. It seems to... It means, basically, because you're saying hot water as well as cool water, that the, the only regions that are hot enough are deep inside the star's envelope, the outflowing wind itself near the surface of the star. So the, the water appears to be everywhere. So we've had to reassess, uh, therefore, the models. Uh, how, how can we produce this water? And the only possible way to do it seems to be if we can use ultraviolet radiation to break up the carbon monoxide into carbon and oxygen atoms. That would liberate the oxygen atoms to react with hydrogen atoms and form water molecules. So where would this ultraviolet light be coming from? Well, the temperature of the star is only about 2,500 degrees, which is much too low to emit ultraviolet radiation. 
So we've had to look at uh, other sources of ultraviolet radiation. And one uh, region we know where you have lots of ultraviolet radiation is in the interstellar medium itself because it's bathed in the light from many very hot O and B-tap stars which emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. Now, the, the problem as it was perceived is how do you get this ultraviolet radiation penetrating deep into the star's envelope? And because what we have, there's a lot of dust in this envelope, which is they're basically carbon dust grains, which are condensed out of the carbon-rich material. So normally, if you had a smooth outflow, the um, obscuration by the dust would prevent any ultraviolet radiation getting in. However, there are observations that point to the fact that the, the envelope around the star isn't smooth and symmetric. It appears to be more like a peanut or a bipolar shape. And that probably means that from some directions, the ultraviolet radiation encounters much less dust and can penetrate right down to the base of the flow. Can we model this structure and work out if there would be enough UV getting in to create the amount of water that we think must be there? Yeah, that's what we've done in the, uh, the paper itself. Having put forward the hypothesis, we had to do some calculations and show that this was a plausible source. We know the density of ultraviolet radiation in interstellar medium, so we needed to show that, A, it could get down into the base of the uh, star's envelope, and B, that the reaction rates would then be sufficient to produce the amount of water vapor molecules that we detect. And these calculations have been carried out by some of the team members, and they do indeed uh, manage to produce enough water vapor. And do we have any observational evidence that backs up the idea that the, the envelope would be this, this non-perfect, this clumpy structure? Yes, uh, this object, CW Leo, is, um, is a difficult object to observe. You, you cannot see it at all in the visible, even with the largest telescopes. All you see is a, is a sort of a nebula around it, which is due to light scattering from the dust particles in the star. However, when you image it at high resolution, high angular resolution, spatial resolution, you find that it's not a point source. It's actually several big clumps. And uh, observations also in the near-infrared show that you get it almost like a peanut structure. So we know for sure that the envelope is not symmetric and smooth all around it, just from these imaging observations that we've obtained. Would there be any other interesting chemistry going on that could help to confirm your hypothesis? Yes, there are several other molecules have been predicted, and they actually are present in, in, in the spectra, although they don't uh, have as many uh, and as strong emission lines as water does. So this is certainly going to be followed up further by higher spectral resolution observations made with another of the instruments on board, uh, Herschel, called HiFi. And it has much higher uh, spectral resolution than the PAX and SPAR spectrometers with which the current observations were made. So that will allow testing to be made of the hypothesis. Mike Barlow from University College London explaining how ultraviolet light from distant stars can actually penetrate the clumpy envelope of red giant stars and alter the chemistry within. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists.
If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. Our first question this week came in from Ricky Lawson. He wants to know if starlight can be redshifted out into the microwave region. Dominic? Theoretically, it wouldn't be physically impossible for a star's light to be redshifted into the microwave region. The faster a star is moving away from you, the further its light is redshifted through the electromagnetic spectrum, and it could go all the way through from visible light right through to microwaves. However, in practice, I don't think any stars are moving away from us fast enough that their light would be redshifted that far. Now, probably the most well-known reason why stars have redshift is because of the expansion of the universe, and all the clusters of galaxies in the universe are moving apart, and as they do so, they recede from one another and their light is redshifted. But in order to be far enough away that its light would be redshifted right through to the microwaves, a star would have to be at a distance of about 13.5 billion light years. And that means that its light would have had to have set off only about a million years after the Big Bang. And in fact, we think that stars took about a few hundred million years to form after the Big Bang. So there were no stars that early in the universe. And the earliest stars in the universe were at distances where they redshifted through to the infrared, but no further than that. Of course, there was light around at those times, and it's what we now know as the cosmic microwave background. So that is exactly the light that has ended up being redshifted all the way into the microwaves, but it didn't come from stars, as Dominic said. Where did it come from? Well, it came from the fact that at very early times, um, everything was so densely packed together that it's in what we call thermal equilibrium. So actually, the energy that was in the protons and electrons and so on can easily be exchanged with energy and light and everything kind of transfers between all the different forms of energy in that way and so it's like a flash of that initial moment itself. Thank you Andrew. We've got a question actually that follows on from this from George Volgaris and he wants to know if light can become sort of diluted as well as redshifted. Yes, that's absolutely right. So as space expands not only is light redshifted it's also diluted. So to get some picture of what's going on here, you could imagine a big box of ping-pong balls. So you've got, got, got a sort of transparent sealed box, and you're shaking this box of ping-pong balls. And if you imagine, they'd all be bouncing around violently inside that box, so they kind of fill up the volume that's available to them inside that box. Now, if somehow you could make that box bigger, then the balls overall would keep bouncing around, and overall they would be spread out through a larger volume as you make that box bigger so mathematically if you double the, the volume then the density of balls would half so it's similar for gas and say dark matter in an expanding universe as the universe gets larger it kind of spreads out and becomes less dense it kind of thins out and it is also true for photons, that's particles of light. They're diluted in exactly the same way. Of course, there's a complication with photons because, as we've discussed before, each individual photon is also losing significant amounts of energy through this redshift effect. So the overall effect as space expands is stronger than you'd predict from either the dilution effect or the redshift effect alone. You have to take into account both of these effects and of course that's exactly what we do when we're doing calculations. 
Thank you, Andrew. We've had a question from Ron Bean. I'll put this one to you, Carolyn. He says that tornadoes and cyclones rotate in a certain direction due to the Earth's rotation, but what causes galaxies to rotate in a particular direction? This is a very interesting question. Of course, when we're talking about galaxies rotating, we're only really talking about spiral galaxies. Most galaxies are big elliptical-shaped galaxies. No individual stars rotate around the centre of the galaxy. They're all kind of buzzing on their own individual orbits at you know, fairly random orientations. It's just when you get to a spiral galaxy, you've got that kind of ball of stars in the middle, and then you have this ordered rotation of all the, the disk of gas and dust and young stars all rotating around the centre. And the key thing that sets up that rotation, it's something that stems right back to the individual hot halo of gas that the galaxy formed from. Because galaxies form as you, you have this million degrees gas, it condenses under gravity, you form uh, stars at the centre, and stars continue to form out of the gas cloud. Now, if there's no inherent rotation in that cloud, it'll stars will just rain down and you'll build up an elliptical galaxy. However, if there's even the slightest rotation on that original hot halo, say there's um, the tug of gravity from a nearby other hot halo, just sends it spinning ever such a little bit, then as the cloud collapses, that rotation is going to increase. You know, just think of an ice skater pulling their arms in, they spin faster, it's just the conservation of angular momentum. And so their later stars form from a much flattened disk where the rotation is much enhanced. In terms of any individual galaxy, it depends on what the original protogalactic cloud was doing and the slightest movement within that. But as we talked about in a previous podcast, there's no preferential direction for galaxies. It's nice to think that the same basic physics applies to an ice skater spinning around as it does to a galaxy forming. Well, we hope so. Otherwise, we got our models slightly wrong. <laughs> Dominic, we've had a question from Scott McGregor. He wants to know what impact a large coronal mass ejection would have. Now, first of all, just remind us what this coronal mass ejection is. Well, coronal mass ejections are massive bursts of ionised material that the sun throws off from time to time. And they come about because the sun is a highly magnetic object, but it's also got a highly variable magnetic field. And sometimes when the field suddenly sharply decreases on one part of the sun's surface, all of the energy that was in the magnetic field is dumped into the gas on the surface of the sun, which becomes incredibly hot and it explodes off out into the solar system in a sort of jet, which could potentially hit a planet like the Earth. Now, if people are exposed to the kinds of ionised material coming off the sun, that would be incredibly harmful. It's rather similar to being exposed to radioactive materials. It's ionising, it, it damages organic molecules. But on the Earth, we're actually very lucky because we have two layers of protection above us. Of course, it's not luck. We wouldn't be here if they weren't there. But we have a magnetic field, which the solar wind particles actually can't penetrate. And we also have the atmosphere above us, which uh, catches any particles which make it through the magnetic field, and that's what we see when we see the northern and southern lights. Now, in fact, even the astronauts on the International Space Station are relatively well protected because although they're above the Earth's atmosphere, they're still well within our magnetic field, which shields them from most of the radiation, and so they only receive about as much radiation as you get from travelling on an airline flight.
However, coronal mass ejections do have some effects. As the Earth's magnetic field does work on the solar wind to deflect it away from us, that changes the Earth's magnetic field on the surface of the Earth, and that can induce voltages in long power lines. And if you're not careful, that can actually trip long-distance power distribution networks like the national grid. And every few years, there's an outage of a large power grid due to the voltages induced by that. One particular example was in Quebec in 1989, when a large fraction of Canada's power grid was, was knocked out by a CME. Now, the CMEs also have very damaging effects on spacecraft outside the Earth's magnetic field. It's one of the most common reasons why a spacecraft can fail, is that there's an interaction between the electronics in the spacecraft and solar wind particles, which actually changes the characteristics of the electronic components and can damage the spacecraft. And certainly looking ahead in terms of sending manned missions to Mars, this is going to be a huge problem. When we went to the moon, we were able to pick times when the sun was quiet and there wouldn't be a lot of ionising radiation that the astronauts would be exposed to. Going to Mars, it takes several years and you won't be able to pick a time when the sun will be quiet for that whole two or three year period. And there's going to have to be a lot more investment in materials that can protect the astronauts before we could contemplate doing those missions. Andrew, if we can come back to you, we've had a question from Rhys Hanan in New Zealand. Now, this one's thrown me completely, but he wants to know what Harava gravity is. OK, well, this is certainly an ambitious question. I mean, at its core, what Harava gravity is trying to do is construct a theory of gravity which is compatible with quantum theory. Of course, there's this big problem with physics at the moment that while on large scales we can describe the way the universe behaves and interacts through gravity using Einstein's theory of general relativity, if we try and apply that on very small scales, we start to get contradictions with this other great theory of 20th century physics, which is quantum theory, which describes how uh, atoms and, and small particles behave. What it really comes down to is understanding the nature of space and time itself because Einstein showed that gravity really is about the way that space and time are bent and warped. And so to understand what Petra Harava has been working on and, and why people are so excited, we need to think about the way that space looks on different scales. Now, the strange thing about trying to do this is that what we're actually talking about is the properties of empty space so the properties of space if it had absolutely nothing in it and of course that's a bit mind-bending at first because normally you try and think of space in terms of what stars or bits of gas or so on are doing but really we've got to talk about what an empty piece of space is like and we can't just treat that as a gap between the two particles where we, we would normally understand can we well, in a sense, it's, it's about asking, well, what is that gap? You know, if you say, well, can we treat it as a gap? Then I have to ask you, well, what, what is a gap exactly? So if we want to understand anything, then understanding gaps might be a good place to start, right? So what this is about is if you suppose you have a completely empty space, so you can't, haven't really got anything there that we can think of in concrete terms as humans, 
Well, on different scales, then, you'd imagine that that space has got to look pretty much the same. There's nothing in it. So if you take a magnifying glass and look at a really small patch of it, it's got to look the same, surely, as a pretty large patch of it because there's nothing that gives you any indication of what the scales are because there's just nothing there. Nothing in there. That makes perfect sense. It seems to make perfect sense. But actually, (laughs) uh, one of the things that comes out of Einstein's theory is that because of the speed of light being a constant, which is sort of at the centre of Einstein's theory. If you change the scale of space, you also need to change the scale of time. So that means even for a completely empty box, if you double the size of that box, it's only equivalent to the original box if you watch it at double speed as well. Okay, so this does sound weird because there's nothing in there, but this is just about the properties of of an empty space. Now, what Harava said is that perhaps on very small scales, this kind of uh, scaling no longer applies. So if you're looking at a very tiny patch of space and you double the size of that patch that you're looking at. In fact, in Harava's theory, you'd have to watch it at eight times the speed instead of double the speed. And it might seem like that's a totally arbitrary thing to say, but in fact, it has some kind of nice properties. Because if you think of doubling the length of an edge of a box, then you've increased its volume by eight times. And so what Harava gravity is kind of doing is saying, well, let's do the same for time, even though there's only one direction of time, let's increase that by a factor of eight as well. So in some sense, it's putting space and time on a more even footing. Well, bizarrely, if you do this really weird thing, then still on large scales, you can find behaviour as predicted by Einstein's equations. But on small scales, you get very different behaviour. And what's really getting everyone excited is that you seem to get behaviour that allows you to build a theory of gravity that's consistent with quantum theory. So it's quite a difficult area, but hopefully that gives you some insight into what we're trying to do. When you say small scales, how small are we talking? The size of an atom? Probably the size of an atom or, or in fact, smaller. It's a sort of tunable uh, feature of this theory where exactly these effects start to take over and things start to change. But certainly you want things to be very different by what we call the Planck scale, which is the scale on which currently gravity breaks down. But that's far, far smaller than the scale of an atom. How long has this theory been around for? Is it fairly well accepted now or is it still quite controversial? It's pretty controversial. It's been around since 2009. And it's just one, of course, of a whole range of different ways that people like to think about what gravity should maybe be doing on small scales. And of course, the most broadly thought about uh, version of this is string theory. It's nice, actually, just to have an alternative to string theory, a new way of thinking about some of these old problems. Thank you, Andrew. Carolyn, what should be a fairly simple question from Kishan, he says, how can we create a black hole? Ah, yes, the answer for Bond villains everywhere, yes. (laughs) How do you make your own personal black hole? Well, let's start off with what makes something a black hole. And the key thing here is density. You really need to concentrate as much mass or energy down into a small enough volume that the gravity is overwhelming and nothing nearby can escape the, the pull of the gravity. How we do this in space is you have a massive star at the end of its life, begins to collapse under gravity as it gets more compressed, the gravitational field gets stronger, and eventually you get to that point of where all the star's mass is pulled in beyond the event horizon. Gravity is overwhelmed 
everything. And the key point here is that gravity is doing the squeezing. So if you want to make a black hole, if you squeeze anything enough, if you compress it enough, you will get to the densities required for a black hole. So, for example, if you took the whole of the planet Earth and squeezed it right down to the size of a marble, that would be a black hole. However, to do that kind of squeezing, you need some enormous outside pressure or force. That's where the difficulty lies. So, for example, start off with something really tiny, like a couple of subatomic particles, and you want to squeeze them together to form a minuscule black hole, perhaps by smashing them together in a high-speed collision. We can't even do that. The force and energy required just to squeeze them to that level is way beyond what we can provide. This is what people were worried about with the LHC, of course, that we would be creating these tiny black holes, but the physics just didn't add up. It wasn't ever going to happen. Uh, well, it is interesting, though, that there are still get-out clauses, OK? <laughs> Andrew's just been telling us about alternative theories of gravity. There is this remote possibility, and I will stress, I still think this is quite speculative, about how you could perhaps smash two subatomic particles together and get a minuscule black hole within the range of those sort of current generation of particle colliders. To do this, though, you'd have to rely on gravity behaving differently on submillimeter microscopic scales. And there are theories where perhaps on that kind of scale, you've got extra dimensions and the, the gravity will be much more intense. So as long as you can get things close enough, you don't have to squeeze them so much before gravity starts to take over and do the squeezing for you. So it's still not entirely impossible that it might happen. And if it did, it means we'd learnt a lot more about how gravity behaves on these tiny scales. Of course, if we were to make a small black hole in something like the LHC, it wouldn't be a big problem because there's a process called Hawking radiation by which black holes actually evaporate their mass slowly. And for a black hole of the kind of size that you would make, it would only last a tiny fraction of a second before it would evaporate back into the ether and not cause any problems at all. Dominic, we've had a question here... It... Bear with me on this one, but Vic Kostuik asks, why does a mirror only reverse the image in the horizontal plane and not in the vertical? Now, that's a really great question that always gets people confused. And the answer is actually surprisingly simple, that when you look in a mirror, nothing is actually inverted at all. Because if you look to your left in the mirror, you see your left side, and if you look to the right, you see your right side. But, of course, that is different from what people see when they're standing in front of you and they turn around to look at you. And the reason why that is is because they're actually turning around to look at you. In the, in the process of turning around, things that were on their left are now on their right and vice versa. So they have flipped their left and right by turning around. But a, a good thought experiment is there's another way that you could turn around and look at someone, and that's to do a head over heels and stand on your head. And then left and right aren't inverted at all but up and down have become inverted. And you may have been wondering what we were doing asking that question in Naked Astronomy, but here's the second part of the question. He said, if you have a mirror in space, on what plane would that reverse the image? Well, in, in a space telescope, the effect would be exactly the same. It's the same in space as, as on Earth, and the image wouldn't actually be inverted at all. That was Dominic Ford with Andrew Ponson and Carolyn Crawford discussing your space science questions. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, then just get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com.
But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and your questions. If you'd like to subscribe to Naked Astronomy, you can search for us on iTunes or you can join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Thank you.